Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Radir Krishtel. I was delighted to welcome Radir to the show as a special guest. We kicked our conversation off by uh, Radir reflecting on growing up in Mitchellville, Maryland, attending the University of Michigan for undergrad and the University of Maryland's law school. I really speed Radir through his whole legal career because what you'll hear is I want to talk about what he does now, which is work as a speaker, a facilitator, and coach. So yes, you'll hear about the decade he spent in large law firms as an intellectual property partner, and also the five years he spent working in-house at Apple. But we really spend the bulk of this conversation talking about two things, meditation and business development. And I swear by the end of the show, you will understand that these two things are in fact connected. And that what we do is explore how meditation can be a great tool for attorneys to use to gain a better understanding of themselves and how knowing oneself is really the key to authentically marketing yourself and being a successful business developer in a law firm. As you can probably tell from my enthusiasm, it was an absolute pleasure to have Radir on the show. My only regret is it took me a very long time to edit what is really a gem of an episode and to get it out to everyone to listen to. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Radir. I suspect that many of you will be looking to connect with him on LinkedIn or perhaps reaching out to see if you can work with him. When he says he's open to outreaching questions, he really means it. So I encourage you to do that. And with that, I hope you enjoy my discussion with Radir Krishtel. Radir, welcome to the podcast. I'm so delighted to have you. I'm going to start this like I start every episode, which is asking you to give a short professional introduction. Thanks so much. It's incredible to be here. I really appreciate it. I practiced law for 15 years. I was a partner at a law firm, clerked in the federal court, was a partner in a law firm from summer associate all the way to partnership and was in-house at Apple for five years. And after 15 years in the practice, I noticed that in our legal practice, as amazing as we are, advocating for others, negotiating deals, doing that hard stand-up work, I found that there are personal and interpersonal conversations that we tend to avoid over time. Complex conversations on diversity, equity, inclusion, complex conversations on leadership and personal growth, and even well-being, our own stress is such a natural part of our work that sometimes we don't feel like it's worth putting on the table and have a direct dialogue around it. And so after seeing that pattern in my practice, I left the practice five years ago and I trained. I first trained as a mindfulness and a yoga instructor. And it's the lessons in those faculties that I felt like they were really supportive to me in how I associated with my legal practice. And I felt like passing those messages and those learnings into the practice. And so I trained as a facilitator. I trained as a coach. I trained in DNI principles and I started this practice. And so now I spend my time as a speaker, as a facilitator, and as a coach supporting organizations, companies, and individuals 
in areas that they want to transform and areas that they want to change and level up both personally and professionally. And often those things mean facing some of the most difficult aspects of our practice. And that's where we sit is creating space for people to have dialogue and growth around some of the aspects of your life and work that are the most difficult. And that's what we're going to dive into. But first, because this is the path and the practice, I have to have you reflect a little bit on your path, that journey to being a law firm partner. And then, of course, we'll cover a little bit about you pivoting out of it. And then we're going to dive into some of the things that you just said. And I also do want to say for the listeners, so Rudir and I have not had an opportunity to meet in person. LinkedIn brought us together, where I think you have an incredibly strong brand. And it takes everything for me not to refer to you by your last name, because I think of you as Chris Tell, because that's what so much of your branding, I know it's the name of your company. So I have to acknowledge that. Should I call you by your last name at some point? Listeners know why. But let's start at the beginning. Could you tell me just a little bit about where you grew up, you know, where you're from and reflect on the early days, just quick, quick snapshot of childhood, if you will. Yeah, I'm from the DC suburbs. I'm from Maryland, Prince George's County or PG County, Maryland, born and raised. Yeah, very fond of my childhood, very fond of PG County. It's one of the only places in the country. There's only a few places that rep a county and PG County is one of them. And so, and it, it's meaningful because it's it's written about, it, it has its own sort of fame and, and, and awareness, and it's a real source of pride being raised and born in, in the county. So if I found you in, say, fifth grade, sixth grade, what are you into? What's the little Rudier up to? Fifth and sixth grade, probably sneaking hip-hop cassette tapes from people in class and in school and listening to them on my Walkman after school in my room and doing you know basic things, learning to cut grass, playing street football, just enjoying enjoying life, a lot of play and a lot of fun. You weren't dreaming of a life a life in the law as a, as a small child? Oh my God, no. I, can, I can't imagine. <laughs> That's really funny that you asked that. No idea, you know, probably just focused on day-to-day life and not really thinking. I never felt like back then I was thinking long-term. I think that was just the beginning of me maybe having some interest in in politics or political work, which is something that kind of grew for me in middle school and high school. But I still ended up studying engineering in college. And so go figure. But there were a lot of ideas that were flowing back then. And I guess that's not different from life right now. A lot of ideas still flowing. Well, I always ask that question and I laugh because there's a lot of aims for this show, but one of it is to show, especially the law students, that we're all just figuring it out as we go along. Because I think sometimes you find people who are doing these tremendous things and I, you know, I count you one of them. We assume you just knew what, you know, you've always known the answer is no, we're, we're just figuring it out. Although I'm also curious if you could just give a reflection on, did you, you know, you have siblings or even just kind of a shout out to your parents, just a general sense of like the family, family dynamics. Yeah. Lovely older sister. She's four years older than me. And just a real, I feel like, role model and an amazing human. She's a physician. She's a pulmonary critical care physician at Penn in, in Pennsylvania. And my parents, just amazing immigrant parents who immigrated in the early 70s to establish our life. And just a hardworking father who was a trauma surgeon and a mother who's uh, at home caring for us and, and loving on us in, in meaningful ways and still doing so. She's downstairs right now. And so she oh, is fantastic. Uh, just an amazing, just a really kind childhood. And where did they immigrate from? From India. Our family is from India, from Western state of Gujarat. Although my parents were both in Mumbai, in Bombay. So we're, we're from, our heritage is from the state of Gujarat, but they're from Mumbai, from Bombay, met there. And for folks that are familiar with Bombay, they 
they they met, you know, we live near a train station called Churchgate Station. And it's worth, you know, taking a Google image search of because it's a pretty sort of famous and busy area in, in that area. And it's something that I just think about, you know, them spending time with each other back then. Well, before I forget to ask, you said PG County, and I too have accepted that folks from PG County rep PG County. Is there a name of a particular town or suburb that you grew up in? Yeah, Mitchellville. It's Mitchellville. Okay. I just wanted to get that out because I was like, of course, PG County, because I'm I'm used to the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's Mitchellville. And Mitchellville, you know, we have uh, Martin Luther King Boulevard in Mitchellville. And I think only until I grew up later in life did I hear people's perspectives on towns and areas that have an MLK Boulevard. But I loved ours. You know, I love where we grew up. I love everything about where we lived. My friends and I had sweatshirts, you know, that when, when hoodies came, when hoodies with, you know, lettering became a thing, our, the first one that we printed was one that said Mitchellville, because we're just really super proud of the town. Fast forward to that, I don't know, high school going into college, you mentioned that at some point you had interest in politics, but ultimately you decide to go on to be an engineer. So where do you go for college? Why did you decide to focus on engineering? Yeah, amazing institution in Ann Arbor, University of Michigan. That's right. That's right. On Michigan's campus, as you're familiar, there is a North Campus for engineering and a central campus for the literature, science and arts and all of the other general studies that happen in a university. And you'll actually really appreciate this story because I only realized and remembered it recently studied engineering for four years, but I found that with every elective, I was back on central campus, whether it was a class that was related to constitutional law or maybe Asian American studies or sociology, where I read about Prince George's County, in fact, in sociology books in Ann Arbor. And so those were the sort of personal pursuits where the heart was on making change, but the head was really focused on math and science and engineering development. And so there was sort of this dichotomy and split life early. And I think I've done a really a lifetime work of integrating split aspects of my life. And so I feel like I integrated engineering and the law by ultimately engaging intellectual property practice. And then later, as we'll get into it, integrated my own mindfulness and yoga work into the legal work. And so I feel like I'm in a lifelong path of integrating and continue to do so. But back then, it was sort of you know, riding that bus back from North Campus down to Central Campus, straddling these both aspects of my life, which was an engineering, you know, technical daytime gig, and then an evening and a weekend gig, fulfilling these heartfelt political thoughts. Well, you see me nodding a lot as you say that. One, for the listeners who don't know, I went to the University of Michigan for law school, which is why you're like, obviously, it's the esteemed (laughs) institution of the University of Michigan. Um, But also, as you were talking about that dichotomy that some of us have or don't even realize we have between being, for lawyers, often very cerebral, very in your head. That's how I was for a very long time. You know, I've had a similar pivot to you and that I've moved to something that is much more people focused on and legal practice is as well in a different way, but I've had to actively cultivate more of that heart-centered awareness. And I know we're going to dig into that a bit and talk about that more, but I just wanted to mention that because I can very much identify with that. But I'm curious, why engineering? So why did you decide to get a degree in engineering? It was simple. I was good at math and physics Okay, and I loved it. And back then it was something that parents in a community, even though they weren't impressing upon me, they approved. And so I don't think anyone in my life forced me to go to engineering, but because I got their affirmation approval, every time I walked around and said electrical engineering, that was for me, 
in my early years sufficient. Now I do everything that doesn't get approval. But back then, it was really seeking approval that led me down that path from my family and from community. It's sort of a shared, I feel like, life for maybe a lot of people, but especially kids of immigrants that are there to sort of make sure they're making the most of the life that was set for and sacrificed by their parents. And so for me, I felt like, let me go down a path, especially if we're paying for this out-of-state tuition at a you know, at this state school, I felt like, let me make something, do something that I would be assured an established career and income afterwards in engineering because I was good at math and physics was, was a place. That's the why. So I've learned this from Dan Sharp, who's DEI manager on my team, recently joined Foley. He's also a former IP attorney. And he says, in every IP attorney's story, there's a point where you're like, I either need to go be an engineer or a chemical engineer or whatever the STEM background is you have. And you decide, I don't want to do that. I'm going to follow this law thing instead. So what for you caused you to decide law school is the path versus a more traditional engineering path? Yeah, I think it was that initial, the heartfelt calling and learning to listen to it early and, and, and even learning to listen to it more later in life. And again, everything when I had a choice was always on that central campus, was always with political science or student activism, being on campus, trying to make change in people's hearts and minds with respect to whatever it is I was engaged with or seeing a movement for Asian American studies in the school or a movement to shift you know, how we are with each other. And so all of those movements really started early for me. And because my heart was more in thinking about change, I actually noticed in my junior year that I didn't know where I wanted to go after college. I didn't know what grad school to pursue. And I was thinking about law school because I had friends that were making that decision also. And I felt like, huh, law school, let me think about that. And although I never wanted to be a lawyer initially, at least then, I looked in the world at people that I felt like I admired and so many of them had a law degree and none of them were practicing law. And it was fascinating that, you know, the head of the NBA was a lawyer. The, the head of the university at that time was a lawyer, Lee Bollinger, the head of the House of Representatives and the Senate and so many institutions in the world, even the heads of major institutions, educational institutions, financial institutions, a lot of them were lawyers. It was fascinating. And so I felt like here's a degree that allows me to think in a certain way and will still will not, not hold me back. But let me pursue this degree to continue education and then see where life unfolds. And at that time, I had a deep interest in, in education, and I was thinking about law school to make policy change with respect to issues in education that I'd been seeing. And I felt like law was a good conduit for that. And then where did you go, go for law school? I went to Maryland. I went back home, got, I think it was like eight or $9,000 a year in tuition, and that was very attractive to me back then. My father actually passed away right after college, and so that was sort of the final decision maker is that I felt slightly on my own at that point. And I felt like, let me make this decision to be closer to home, to be with family and to be in a position where I could support myself financially. And so there were these amazing decisions that brought me back home to my family. And so I went to University of Maryland. And this is where I have to try not to do the exact ask you all the questions I ask every guest because we need to save so much time for you to talk about what you do now. So I'm going to summarize a few things and then get your reflections. And then we're going to pivot to talk about your work as a speaker, facilitator, and coach. But you do ultimately 
decide to, to practice, to go to a large law firm after law school. You spend a decade as an IP partner at Fish and Richardson. You go in-house at Apple for, I think, also almost five years. So you end up getting 15 years or so of practice. First, you, know, you become a law firm partner. You're in-house at, you know, I don't even know, Fortune 5 company. Like, I don't even know what Apple is at this point. But I'd love some quick reflections on the last, you know, you know the first 15 years of your legal journey that if there's anything worth worth sharing there, but then we definitely want to talk about the pivot and so that we can dig in and start giving some advice and sharing some of your insights based on what you do now. I think the major inflection point in the private sector practice was after making partner, you know, I was working 24, 2,500 hours. I can't remember the number, some amazing number of hours that felt amazing to me on top of which doing pro bono work, active in bar associations, recruiting, DEI, all the things. I was that firm citizen. At the close of discovery on a case, I was in a hotel room in Redwood City, the fifth floor of the Sofitel Hotel. And I was closing my laptop. It was near midnight and the entire left side of my body froze. And I thought, here it is. I'm in my early 30s and I'm having that moment. It feels like a heart attack or a stroke. It's like left side of the body. And he got reaching out to a cousin and an uncle who are cardiologists. And they said, just seems, seems like, you know, we don't know, but based on your lifestyle and the amount of stress that you put on yourself and the things that are happening, get to the ER right away. And it was ultimately, it was okay. It was actually a result of stress and not something that I would actually talk about or pay attention to. It was sort of you know, back then a doctor would say zero to 10, how stressed are you? And I'd say 12 doc, you know, as a litigator, the smile on my face, I'm a 12, I'm proud of it. You know, give me a shot in the arm and throw me back in coach. And so- I have things to draft. I have, I have motions to I argue. Was, I worked for lawyers who were still drafting briefs right before they delivered a child, you know, like minutes before. And so I, I was raised under a certain way of practicing and I was proud of it, not really acknowledging the toll and the impact that aspects of how I chose to practice would have an impact on my life. And so, but it was that moment, despite getting checked up afterwards, everything being okay, I decided to listen to my body. And we'll talk about that more, what that really means. It didn't mean anything to me until that moment. And even saying it out loud, I don't think I could say that out loud. I'd probably be embarrassed back then to say that. And that's when your body at that point is screaming. Like your body had been whispering likely for a while and it started to scream at you. Yes. Yeah. And as I noticed, and I paid attention, I said, you know what, let me put some feelers out. I put some feelers out. Apple was a client of mine, client of the firms and a company that I worked with. And they said, you know, we have this position open in this role and we'd love to have you if you're willing to move out here to the Bay. And so I did. And so that was a pretty major inflection point. Again, not revealing, not having the courage to ask for a reduced, you know, hours or, or shift or take a break or maybe, you know, take a few months off. That wasn't in me at the time. And so rather than that, rather than having that difficult conversation, which maybe we'll talk about more later, I fled the coast and I joined Apple for, you know, the better part of five years. All right. So you go to, to in-house life and eventually you decide, I'm going to start something completely new. My guess is it maybe isn't as straightforward as that, but definitely interested. Because here's the thing. One of the reasons I wanted to go through all of your background is not just because of the podcast you're on, but I've noticed, and I'll say this gingerly, often attorneys can't hear you until they either know your credentials or know that you really understand the life that they're in. 
Now, I want us to change that a bit because it turns out you don't have to have a JD in order to have some really, you know, some words of wisdom. But I do think it's really important for lawyers often that they want to know, how well do you know this life? And that comes up for me a lot. I notice people can hear me better when they hear where I went to law school and where I practiced. But I also do know people are often very interested in those who pivot. So saying a few words about what, what caused you to want to start your own thing after 15 years of legal practice. This relates a little bit to maybe, maybe we'll talk about this in a bit. The thing that I leaned into the most in about year two of my time at Apple was my, uh, my meditation practice, my mindfulness practice. And I was meditating. I took a class and when I took a class and I paid for a class, it invited me to meditate 20 minutes twice a day. And I did that for about two months and it changed everything in a two month period of a dedicated practice. And so I tell people I went from a mile to a marathon. I did a 10 day mindfulness retreat, 12 to 14 hours of meditation a day, silence for 10 days. And that changed my whole life. And it was really after that, that through a regular mindfulness and meditation practice, I started to notice the way that we think in the practice of law, the way that people think after the mind, I feel like gets calcified against our, you know, based on our thinking after 10, 15 years, isn't always necessarily helpful or true or valuable. And there's often based on assumptions that we make that aren't true. And I started to see that around me in meaningful ways. And the more I practiced meditation, the more I saw this sort of noticeable difference between myself and, and, and people around me. And I think that calling that came as a result of that drove me on a freight train to what I do today. I mean, there were many hurdles and obstacles and challenges along the way. It was not easy, but I left wanting to make some difference, make some change. And that sort of helped spark kind of the, the career path that I've been on since. All right. So you started really being able to hear and listen to yourself is what I'm hearing. And your that reflection is meaningful to me because I started consistent meditation practice, I think at this point, about five years ago, I'd started on my own. And here's the thing, this is where, and I know you encounter this, meditations become the flavor of the day. It's download the Calm app. It's law firms saying, lawyers, why don't you meditate? And I think for a lot of people, there can be a little bit of an eye roll of like, well, okay, not this again. But I know for me, when I got real in-person instruction, and I'm I'm going, or I say, should say live in-person instruction, and for me, this was Vedic meditation, which is very similar to transcendental, I think virtually the same thing, sounds similar to sort of what, what you were just describing. I would say that's one of the best investments I've made in my entire life. And also generally when it comes to lawyers operating at such a high level, anything that you can do to invest in your well-being, to help you better align your practice with your interests or you know whatever it may be, I think is worth its weight in weight in gold. There's a lot that we as law firms need to do to better support our people, but I do think tools to help with other sorts of personal development and wellness while you're on this journey are critical, which is ultimately, I think, you know, why you're here on the show today and what we're going to talk a little bit about. So I want to skip ahead. I won't have you, you know, go through, you know, month by month how you launched your company, but remind us where you started. You talked about what you do now as a speaker, a facilitator, a coach, and I'd love to talk about some of the topics that are top of mind for you and to dive into those a bit. Yeah. And I just want to tap back into what you said. The practice that I did learn initially was a TM style meditation. That was the class that I took. It wasn't TM. It was a different class, but it taught the same technique. And I think 
that was really powerful for me. And just to clarify for folks that are listening, there tend to be, you know, you can boil mindfulness or meditation practices down to maybe a couple of styles. There are many, but it's easy for me to simplify by thinking about a focused meditation style and an open meditation. And TM to me is a very focused, focusing on a single thing. And for me as a lawyer and as an engineer with a logical underpinning, it was very, very manageable for me to latch onto. And so that was really helpful for me. Since then, I had practiced a, a more open style, which is paying attention to what's happening. Oftentimes you have meditations that allow you to pay attention to your breath or pay attention to the body or listen to what's happening around you. And that's more of a style where you're paying attention to what's just happening right now, staying present, as people might say. And I think both may... Basically, if you're, if you're exploring meditation, there are different kinds. You might learn something once that doesn't fit perfect. There are other aspects. And I just welcome people to continue their exploration just like you would with anything, because I have a feeling that for many, there's you know that first, first experience or first layer might not be the thing that fits. But for me personally, and for everything that I've seen, that continued exploration it makes a meaningful difference. And relating back to what you said, it is truly the thing in life that I put the smallest amount of effort in and I get the most amount of return on investment. And so when I say the smallest amount of investment, right now it's cost-free. It's five, 10, 15 minutes a day sitting in my chair, not having to go to a gym, not having to go anywhere. And personally, professionally, financially, in my marriage, in parenting, you name it, I attribute all of my success to this simple practice. That really lands for me. It reminds me. So the first podcast I was ever on, I mean, it wasn't this one. It was uh, Gina Cho's, I think it's The Mindful Lawyer. Is, I think that's the title. Anxious Lawyer is the book. Yes. So that she has a book, The Anxious Lawyer. And I think her podcast is The Mindful Lawyer. We talked about this very thing, how often as attorneys, you know, meditation can't possibly be for me. Even if it worked for me, I would lose my edge. And what I shared was how pivotal at, you know, my own meditation journey and, you know, cultivating mindfulness in my own life had been in actually making me much more effective in every aspect of my life, including, including work, of course. And what I was actually just kind of laughing as we were talking is we're going to talk a little bit about meditation, but the other big thing I know we want to talk about is business development. So for listeners, they're going to at some point be like, wow, that was a hard turn, guys. But ultimately, so much of this connecting to your relationship with yourself, how it informs your relationship with others, it's actually one big sort of continuum that I don't know that we're going to sort of map out completely today. But believe it or not, these things absolutely connect. And I think it's important to talk about how that inner work can really help with the, you know, your, your outer work, with the day-to-day, -day, with the billable hour, with the developing clients, with all that. So sorry, I just kind of went on a, a whole long aside there, <laughs> but I don't know, how, what, are, what are your thoughts on for lawyers? So what are you saying lawyers should meditate? Like, what are, what are we trying to even say here? I welcome lawyers to meditate. I welcome exploring something that is simple and profound, that is, can be a small experiment and lead to huge dividends. And because it made me better in my legal work, the ability to negotiate billion dollar deals at Apple is no small task or feat. Be deposed, I was sitting in the hot seat, I was a 30B6 witness at the company. And so being on the receiving end of questions you know, with the camera on and the red light going and, and multiple lawyers in a room is not a simple thing. And it was the meditation practice that got me there. I'm sure there's a lawyer that's listening 
that would fear that opportunity. And I just talked to the lawyer that defended me in my first one. And he said, man, that first one, you know, we could tell you're a bit nervous, but as soon as we took that first break, you came back and you had some strength in you. And it was literally since then that every single one was certainly straightforward, but it was because of these mindfulness and meditation practices that I became more comfortable standing in front of others. I was, even as a litigator, very nervous in a courtroom. Since this mindfulness practice, I'm able to speak in front of thousands of people. Negotiating deals and negotiating across the table had a complexity and a challenge for me. Afterwards, it became actually something that was much more palatable. And even being deposed or being, being a witness, again, all of it, I lean back to these practices. And so I find a direct connection between the practices and professional benefits, certainly personal benefit, but we're not asking the practice to end up making you what you might, what people might think is more relaxed and the more lazy, I'm gonna take the pedal off the gas. In fact, it has allowed me to speed up in a more comfortable way, be more clear about everything that I want and the direction that I'm going, make the options very simple and allow me to hear myself, which I'm not sure. Again, I was paying attention to a lot of voices around me. I was paying attention to what other people may have thought is the best path. And I feel like I have a much more clear path into understanding what the best choice is, what the best decision is, what the best path is, and being able to meet any moment. And so that's, to me, deeply valuable in a legal career and really any career. All right. So this is actually not the first podcast episode of this show where we've talked about meditation for listeners. Also, episode 49 with Belinda Morgan, who's a partner at Foley. We talk about the role that meditation played in, in her life and her career at Foley. I just want to say, unfortunately, this is not the first time we've kind of gone down this rabbit hole. I wanted to share that. Although I am curious, people might wonder, okay, you said all this stuff that changed. Like, why or what do you like what sort of develop, what changed in you that resulted in everything you just said? Like what exactly is happening? What's going on? I think when you meditate, part of the practice is sitting with yourself and breathing or paying attention and allowing yourself to understand what your thoughts are, what happens in your body, and just become ultimately more comfortable with yourself. That is part of the practice. It's not the entire practice, but it's certainly a, a, a nice added benefit. And I think there's just a deep, profound comfort and understanding of how my mind works, a deep and profound understanding of what, about who I am, and just an incredible comfort with myself that, and I hear from a lot of lawyers about how they feel like, oh, I'm not sure I belong in this room, or I'm not sure I'm ready for this call, or I feel a little bit nervous stepping into this thing. And that's very human and very natural, but meditation really mitigated that for me. And it's not to say that I don't get scared anymore or I don't have nervousness. That's not true. I mean, that's very human, but I got to, the, the, the peaks and the valleys have sort of mitigated or shortened. And so anything that is difficult is difficult for a less shorter period of time. Anything that even is, you know, hard, or I used to, I talked to a lawyer once and he said, you know, when we, we make a pitch and, and I realized that they picked another firm. I, you know, he said I would beat myself up for like a week trying to figure out, and it would just impact not only him, his team members, but ultimately the other work that he was doing because he was so distracted. And so whether it's you lose a briefing, you know, lose a negotiation, or, or even win at something, sometimes there's certain events, you know, an email, a, a difficult conversation, a client giving you critical feedback. Sometimes we don't recover quickly. Sometimes that impacts us. It not only impacts us, but then it impacts our relationships or the quality of work that we're engaging in. 
And meditation really, you know, one benefit has been that's all been very much mitigated, that something is difficult for me only for a few seconds or a few minutes, and maybe an hour at best. Things don't usually ruin my day, and they definitely don't ruin my week. And so that's where the happiness comes in, is that first difficulty is reduced, and that ultimately allows happiness to increase. And I think that when I teach lawyers mindfulness and meditation, which is part of what I did, or, or sometimes what I do, and when I do that, it has a huge impact, I think, on how they approach the challenges. And guess what? We got many challenges. And so if we have many challenges, and in fact, we're in a career where we invite ourselves to solve and be in challenges, you know, you hear a lot of lawyers say, oh, I put so many fires today, or so many fires, but you wanted those fires. Those fires were actually interesting and attractive to you. That's the career we chose. So if we're choosing this career of being surrounded by difficulty, challenge, and fire, let's now invest in the things that allow us to have a better relationship with them. And I found meditation to have just a profound impact on how I relate to difficulty. There's so much wisdom there. I've also found, I know I touched on the cerebral mind of most lawyers, that type A mind. We get very carried by our own personal judgments and our thought patterns and processes that we don't necessarily realize them for what they are, which is depending on what's going on in your life, it is just a thought. And I think that in cultivating some stillness where you're putting that more of observer of what goes into your on in your head allows you to have a bit more detachment and to pause a beat, right? Before, you know, you're you're some voices telling you how terrible you are because you lost that pitch. But now instead of saying, yeah, you're right, you're able to pause a beat, maybe decide if that's what you want to go along with. Decide if you want to have a lot of reactivity to something going on. And one of my favorite quotes is from Viktor Frankl's man's search for meaning. And the quote is, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space allows our, is our power to choose. And I apologize if I'm misquoting Ms. Viktor Frankl right now. But that that whole idea that I think is becoming more cliche of between reactivity, are you reacting or are you responding? In our profession, and I say this as someone who's still licensed, but doesn't practice anymore, being able to intentionally respond is very powerful. And I think certainly gives those who are able to do that an edge over the, someone who's sort of knee-jerk reacting, being carried by spinning thoughts. And we could talk about this forever. <laughs> so, In fact, I do. Uh, In fact, I do. I talk about this endlessly. Yeah. But I know there were some other things that were top of mind in terms of, you know, what you do to do day to day and assist lawyers and others with. And I know one of those is business development. So here's that hard turn I mentioned earlier. Let's talk about that for a little bit. And maybe you give a little bit of the setup. I don't know if there's a further connection or if we just make a hard turn, but 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 what do you do in that area and what's your what's your advice? It actually relates a lot to what we've been talking about. And so I'll make the connection and when I was a partner, despite feeling very sort of successful and well-liked and loved in the, in the legal community at my firm, I couldn't string together a sentence on business development. Can't say, despite having large networks and communities and bar association involvement and all the things, just couldn't, was very uncomfortable with the idea of having to have a dialogue about business growth with a potential client. And when I went to Apple, I saw on the receiving end how folks approached me how they approached my team and my colleagues, what landed for folks, how they approached other groups. And I sort of made a subconscious study of it. And it's not that I was thinking about my career now, but I was just, I was paying attention. I'm a people person. I was paying attention. And when I left the practice, I started to, part of this coaching practice was coaching lawyers. And part of the things that they needed help on was business development. And so my first client, my first actual client, who is still a client, 
I said, what do you want to do? What's your goal? And he said, well, in four years, I want to generate, he had 250,000 in originations at the time. And he said, in four years, I want to be at 4 million. And I took sort of a quiet gulp. You know, I was a little bit nervous about that. And I just thought, wow, 250 to 4 million. And I had never generated that revenue myself, but I was pretty bullish on my coaching aptitude. And so I said, yeah, let's go for it. You know, he texted me six weeks ago. I'm at 5. million for the year. So four years later, we had this huge turnaround. And I had seen that turnaround with many of my clients, uh, exponential growth, you know, two to 5 million in the course of a year, zero to 4 million in the course of a year, two to 12 million. You've got everyone's attention, by the way. You have our attention. Everyone's like, all right, how? Okay, what are we all of it. And, I, and, I, and it's not, it happens all the time. This is what the work that we do. So I converted that into a group coaching program. And then we also come into law firms and, and, and hold these group coaching programs. But the group coaching program that we have, we have 30 to 50 lawyers every year, and we engage them in a six-month program that I feel like is profoundly successful. And part of it, part of it is we spend a good amount of time coming up with an individualized plan for people because we don't offer something that's off the shelf. You got 30 to 50 people in a class there are M&A lawyers, there are litigation lawyers, there are patent prosecution, employment, you name the practice, I've coached them. And not everyone's practice is the same. Their geography, the, the product that they offer, and even who they are as individuals. And so we talk a lot and we hear a lot in this class about people that want to learn to authentically market themselves, authentically talk about their business, because what people don't appreciate is how they're marketed too. You know, we get vendors approaching, we get people approaching, and sometimes it feels like a, a bother and a burden. And the last thing we want to do is be a bother or a burden to someone else. And what that ends up doing is preventing us from doing the thing at all. And I think that is unfortunate. And I do this work. I do business development work because I think it offers a lot of individuals autonomy, control, and self-rule. And that is quite powerful. You're certainly at a large institution or a medium or small size you know, firm, uh, depending on who ultimately ends up listening. But what we want, what a lot of us want in our life is just our ability to kind of control the situation and be in control of ourselves. And growing your own practice, being a business owner, even if it's a business owner within the context of a larger firm, you know, running a practice within the context of a larger firm has a lot of power and autonomy. And one path to that that I've noticed that I think a lot of people skip because people think of business development as, you know, just go after people and, and make a list and go attack it. It's sort of like sales. It's sales. It's, it's yes. hunting as an individual or hunting in packs. And I, I don't agree. I don't agree. I think we are amazing humans that have this incredible skill set in supporting people with the most complex challenges in the world. And all we are doing is ultimately offering to provide those services to somebody and help somebody. That's actually a need. You're not trying to sell something to someone that doesn't need it. In fact, is the world full of problems? Yes. Are there companies that have challenges right now? Yes. Are you able to offer some insight to those challenges? Certainly. So now we're actually, all we're doing is connecting you to a human that needs your service. And the place where we start in my coaching is having people understand themselves. And I just had a call with a client a few months back and he started with me a year before with zero in originations and was a counsel at another firm. When we started talking, he realized two things because we started talking with a conversation about him understanding himself first, which relates back to this mindfulness and meditation work is I believe that when we understand ourselves better and have a better sense of who we are, it leads us down a better path in life. And so I spent time with him 
helping each of us understand who he is today. And there was some deep insight that came from that. And the first thing he realized is I'm at the wrong firm because these people are different than me. And my style and my way of litigating is actually different than the people that are running this firm. And before then, he thought he was wrong and the leaders were right. And after this conversation, he realized it's actually him that's okay. And they're fine doing what they are too. There is no wrong here. It's just that oftentimes, and attorneys that are listening might relate to this, is we tend to think that in order for us to be successful, we have to build a practice using the playbook that the partner that I trained under built. And I have to be like them. And that ends up being a barrier is I'm not them. I can't be like them. So then I'm not able to do this. And it's just not true. We tell ourselves a false story. And so I talked to this lawyer about who he is. He helped understand himself better, his nature, how he likes to engage and interact with people. And we started building a plan. And so in our course, and even in this conversation with this one person, we built a plan based on who he was as an individual. And I talked to him a year later and I said, you know, how's business? Where are you right now? And he's like, I haven't even looked at the numbers. He had since switched firms. Again, zero in originations originations year before. He had since switched firms. He opened up the numbers and he was like, I'm on pace. I'm at 3.7 million. And I just started laughing and coughing on the other end of the phone. I was like, what? When, when did we do this? Like, what's going on? And we both couldn't believe it. He had not even looked. He had just been churning away, bringing in work, connecting with people, building his practice. He was on pace for four million that year. And I talked to him and I said, what do you attribute this to? And he said, it was our first conversation where you helped me better understand who I really am. And when I did that, I started down an entirely different path. And it's being able to be myself with others finally that's allowed me to build the relationships and connections that help me flourish my practice. And that is that's a lot. There's so much wrapped up in what you were what you just said. So I do think one, for many of us, we join large law firms and you kind of don't appreciate the fact that at most firms at some point it's all right, you know, you can go out there and you know continue developing clients for this firm. We don't feel equipped. We think we can achieve it by being given a pamphlet with a one, two, three, four step guide. We think we can emulate those in front of us, which is maybe to some extent, there's going to be some really useful information there. But the way legal, like laws, law firms have changed so much that the way a partner grew their business 25 years ago, very different likely than the the firm they're they're in right now. There's a number of things as director of diversity and inclusion, (laughs) I can hear may even be or likely even harder for those who find themselves from, you know, some sort of underrepresented group, women, racial, ethnic minorities, and so on looking forward to say, well, I don't see anybody like me, the way I would develop businesses different. But then also, you're saying that I'm going to have to get introspective to figure this out, that I can't just follow the PowerPoint, that by the way, we as a law firm are happy to give you and happy to get you started, but there really is this deeply introspective thing of getting to know yourself as well as well as I think self-esteem and truly believing that what you have to, to offer is valuable because you use the words authentic in how you were describing the process. And I mean, it's a lot, but I think it makes sense. And with your client, it also sounds like he was enjoying what he was doing. He wasn't obsessed with the numbers because it sounds like he had hit his stride and actually was enjoying it, which to some may also be hard to believe. But that's the other thing. A lot of a lot of you know the rainmaking partners out there they they really like 
what they're doing. So I'd love if you could pick up a bit on any of the things I said, but I think in particular what you found for attorneys of color or women in these spaces is they try to connect with their authentic ways of developing clients and business. First, the person that we're talking about is on fire right now. Like he's on fire. And so are everyone in my current class. Listeners can't see this, but I'm showing you. We have a WhatsApp group with the people that are in our current class. And every few minutes of every day, they are all texting about something that they did that is turning the corner in their practice growth. And this is just a constantly flowing, I can't even keep up. The winds that come from this introspection are quite profound and powerful. And we actually have special sessions within our six-month class because inevitably every year somebody says, hey, I want to talk about some of the special situations that come up for women of color or black women or you know, racial minorities, whatever it might be, and somebody that's underrepresented or underserved. And we've done, I feel like, incredible work on helping shift past a lot of the challenges and walls, you know, be it real or something that we feel like is true. And there are so many stories that, you know, I wonder if maybe down the road we do a part two in this conversation to really dive into some of these unique stories that come at the intersection of DEI and business growth. Because ultimately, to me, that's the equity piece. You know, there's a lot of things that we talk about when we talk about equity, but the equity that a lot of us want is equity in our own, again, self-rule, control, and even financially. And I feel like some of these conversations, we've literally made profound financial difference for people and individuals in their personal life, and especially underrepresented groups, when we address head-on some of the challenges that they face that are, again, real and also created. And both, I think, when we start to really get into the weeds of each of these stories and start to unfold and open them up, I have seen now the personal, interpersonal, and even systemic changes that we can make and need to happen in order for, for all of us to have a piece of that, a piece of that pie. Well, and what are some examples? Because of course, you know, I'm sure some listeners are going to be inspired to instantly go to Christel.com or to email me or business development folks at Foley to be like, hey, can we <laughs> we retain him as a coach? But in terms of starting the journey with that self-reflection that can can help better connect you to more authentic way of generating business. What are some of the questions? What are like a, a handful of questions or tactics? Questions you're asking are the, what are the questions that people ask me or ask themselves or what are some of the tactics? Should ask themselves, should ask themselves as they start trying to get a better sense of what make them more authentic in their client relationship building. I think the first question you'd be surprised that people don't ask is what do you want? What is it that you want 10 years from now? You'd be surprised how many times I ask that question and people say, I don't know, I've never thought about it. We're going to grow something and it is not a set path in the way that you have achieved until now. A lot of even the path to elevation or partnership at a firm, as, as sometimes obscure as it may feel, enough people have done it where you feel like there is a path to follow, some path. And the path to business growth, growth and entrepreneurship is a very unknown path. It's actually getting very comfortable with the unknown getting comfortable with failure and knowing that you can't control all the outcomes and that some of the things that you do won't result in the things that you want. And so oftentimes when I ask people, what do they want 10 years from now? They say, I don't even, I've never even thought about that. And so first I think it's getting very, very clear on where you're trying to go. And then there are certain steps that become, you know, it's, it's the Google Maps or Apple Maps business development plan. Let's think of the destination first, and then let's think of the steps. And then whoever you are as a human, no matter your background, 
you will find that there are certain steps and hurdles along the way to that goal. And I, through this mindfulness work and through all the work that I've done, I like to really get comfortable and really close to the difficulty and understand what are the difficult and most challenging aspects and what are stories that we tell ourselves and what's actually and absolutely true. And so let's find the real challenges that are on the way. Let's find the humans and the systems that are in our way. And now let's come up with a strategy for each of them on the way to this goal. And it's fascinating. They are not bespoke. They are not one size fits all. There's nothing off the shelf about it. It is actually very personal situations. And I probably have a hundred stories about various situations and scenarios that are not necessarily repeatable, but that different individuals face based on their own personality, the people around them, that particular practice. And I literally, and we literally as a team roll up our sleeves and try to resolve each of these issues on the way to allow people to achieve their goals. And I think it'd be sort of a disservice to say, here's the thing that everybody should do. In fact, I think it's, it's that deep understanding of what you want, the deep understanding of who you are and a real time self-investment in yourself that allows you to really understand what's the path to getting there and then unturning and overturning those stones and, 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 and walls and hurdles that are in your way one at a time. And I've, I found that to be just profoundly empowering because every single one that you move away and move down then fuels you to the next. And let me tell you, you know, we're in the wake of, we're always around record breakers and game changers and people that have done things for the first time. And I feel like all of us can be that person. All of us can, if we really put our effort, mind, and, and, and energy into it, there are so many firsts that are happening all around us. People that are the highest points ever scored in the NBA, or you know, the first first time we've ever won an NCAA women's title, or you know, the first people on the Tennessee House floor that have done X, Y, and Z. And so people are doing profound things in the world that have never been done before. And I am joyful optimist. Why not you? Let's go get it. It might not be their playbook. We might have to come up with your own and I'm all in for it. Well, I know as we're going to, we're going to start winding down a bit, but as you were explaining that, I was thinking about how it's this interesting combination of there's likely no one who has the exact journey that you want to follow, right? It's all about, sorry to sound more cliche, following your own path. But that being said, you also really don't want to be an island is, is what I'm hearing. So as you're on this journey, and I know this is something at Foley, we give a lot of support around business development. We try our best to give examples of the different types of business developer, but hey, we can boil it down to five, but ultimately there's, you know, millions of types that we just can't, can't figure out or refine for you. But I think there can be a reticence to really get in the weeds. If I say it out loud and I don't achieve it, I'm more afraid of that failure. And also to talk to others to help you along the path. Because we think we think kind of like how we got our JDs. If I just put my head down and I grind, I'm going to develop some business. And I see you shaking your head. So there's a power in community that I'd love to hear you speak on before I ask you my final question. It relates back to principles that probably root in some of our meditation practices. But to me, clearly there are people that have succeeded in business growth. Clearly there's a path. In that path, especially in a service industry, as you are here to connect and build with others, that path involves connecting with humans to grow your practice. And so 
whether it's a coach or a program, that's fine. Or even colleagues that you collectively conspire with to grow your practice. Business development at firms can be so isolating because we feel like we're on our own. And I've, I've, there's something about the law firm environment that perpetuates that. And that's what we feel like we are counterbalanced to is creating a community around your growth. And when you do that, you get incredibly adept, I feel like, at having these conversations, naming these goals out loud, planning them collectively, and really collectively getting energy to go after them. As you see other humans around you that are making small strides, it motivates you to do the same. And so I welcome the opportunity for people to create communities or find places where they feel like they can, you know, the entrepreneurs have entrepreneur circles, CEOs have CEO groups. You're a business owner, you're about to step into business ownership, find a place where you can gather and connect. You can't get anywhere without mentorship and, and live learning. Everything that you've done until now required that. And so if you're not finding yourself in some space that invites you to be a part of that, then I welcome you to, to really, you know, raise your hand and find it and step towards it. Yeah. And I love the, both the motivation, the inspiration that others can give, but also the mirror. You need other people to help you, I think, deepen that relationship and understanding with yourself very much so. All right. So my last substantive question for you, we've gone from your path to meditation, to business development, but I like to end this show with general advice to those early in their legal career. You've worked with attorneys in so many different ways, it's a tough question to say, if you had to boil it down, you know, what, what would be your advice to somebody early in their career? But, but what is that advice? What's something that you wish someone had told you when you were first starting out? Yeah, I can't say it's advice for everybody, but I can say it's the advice that I would have given myself is be more courageous. This practice will drive you into your head and into making logical decisions that are certainly sound and, and, and the logic that we use to advise many others, but there's a room for your heart and there's a room for your gut and listen to your heart and listen to your gut and step towards some of the things that are difficult and, and build that courage that allows you to step towards some of that, something that you might not do otherwise. I think we tend to get risk averse in this practice, which is amazing for our clients and for the work, but I do ultimately think it gets in the way of us trying things that are profound and life-changing and game-changing for us because that takes a little bit of fear and risk and comfort with discomfort. And so I, I think getting more comfortable with what's uncomfortable would be a quote or, or a message that I would, I would share with myself early in life. And that, that's certainly been proven huge value to me. That's fantastic advice. We're talking on one of those weird, they probably won't go for it ideas right now because this podcast just itself is very unusual for a large law firm. But here we are over 100 episodes in and lo and behold, the 180 plus year old law firm went for it. So it's a little bit different from the day to day practicing attorneys, but you never know how something can be received until you um, engage with it and give it a try. With that, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. I, I end also all of these by encouraging listeners to reach out. So Rudir, if an attorney or a listener wants to get in touch with you, where's the best way they can track you down? Christelle.com, that last name that sometimes people want to call me as my first name, Christelle.com, our website, or LinkedIn, Rudir Christel. And I think both are amazing. And I love connecting on LinkedIn because then people get to share and connect stories that they might be sharing or see what we're sharing and, and, and constantly get a sense of what we're up to. And you have some fantastic LinkedIn content. And yes, I did not call you Chris Tell this whole time, but you maybe saw me pause a beat a few times because I really, really wanted to. <laughs> but thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been fantastic and I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. 
Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.